This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Dwight Schultz. I played Reginald Barkley, otherwise known as Broccoli, on Star Trek Next Generation and Voyager. You're listening to Trek FM. T.O. Gray Hot. Welcome, listeners, to another cup of Earl Grey. I'm your host, Joe Keegan, and it's not usual because like, we have five hosts now, so it's a bit of a, a lottery about who you're going to get. It's a surprise for you, listeners. So today I have with me Kevin Scarf, my friend from Canada, and also Ria Papa Giorgio. Hello. How are you both? Doing wonderful. How about you, Joe? Joe's good. I went out earlier, it was quite warm for here. 16 degrees Celsius earlier when I took the dogs out. So I didn't take a jacket, but it rained all the way there and all the way back. So I was a bit soggy on the way home. But now it's lovely blue skies, 18 degrees Celsius. You guys can do the... That's your math challenge for next week, listeners, is to convert that in your head. Remember, you multiply by 9, divide by 5, and add 32. Is that, oh, is that the conversion? I've, I've never had to do You should, like, just double it and add 32. So... Roughly, it'll get you in the ballpark, as the Americans say. Well, it's not just the Americans; it's also the Bahamas, Palau, Belize, the Cayman Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands. So, wow, like that's like maybe ninety percent of the world's population, <laughs> isn't it? Then, or two percent? <laughs> Probably something more like that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, it's nice to see your refaces. We have no Babel conference feedback. We do have some Babel conference feedback, but we're going to wait and bring it to you on another episode. So, a new topic to discuss this week. We're going to talk about something that I have kind of struggled with when researching, um, just because I think it's weird a lot of the times when a topic on Earl Grey comes up, I think this is really dull and I'm going to be so bored. And then when you actually get to talk about it, when you hear other people's opinions and what they have to bring to the conversation, it's actually really interesting. And you learn loads about Trek and about other people's opinions. So that's cool. So the topic is Data's Hobbies. Whose great idea was this topic? Who's going to take I the blame? I will step up and take the blame for this. Um, I just thought it was fun. Uh, a lot of times we see Data's hobbies in like the teasers for episodes. They don't all. They don't often become the basis for entire episodes. They're just cold opens or um, or little running gags, the B stories of of major episodes. Mm-hmm. But I think what makes them interesting is that they're part of Data's quest to become more human. And I think I think that will make it a fun, interesting discussion. 
Hmm. Interesting. Rhea, what did you think when you got the chance to come on and talk about this topic? Um, same kind of thing. You know, it's you don't really think about it off the top of your head. You know, it's not the first thing that comes to mind is Data's hobbies. Um, but when you look into it, they're kind of uh, reveal a lot about his quest to become more human. And I think as, as we talk about him a little more, at least that's how I was looking at it when looking at the different hobbies that he had was, you know, well, why did he do this? You know, what was he trying to bring out? What was he trying to simulate, you know, about being human? Um, I, I, I guess you could say it was like fake it till you make it approach to becoming human. Well, if I want to be human, I need to do the things that humans do. And that includes music and art and wearing the visor when you deal poker and that kind of thing. <laughs> That's interesting that you say that, um, that his choice of hobbies as well is kind of revealing um, and it's me. I think we we spoke about this a while back on Earl Grey when we're talking about kind of high culture in TNG and the use of Shakespeare in art and classical music. How that how that was incorporated, and I think a lot of that crosses over with Data's choice of hobbies and how he explores humanity. I know Cooper's got a lot to say about Data's hobbies, don't you? So. I think we've um, all kind of touched on the first um, question, which is why does Data have hobbies in the first place? Um, we've all mentioned that it's more than likely to do with his seeking to become more human and explore the human condition, which is something Star Trek has always sought to do. But Data, like Spock before him, they've kind of always been super curious about what it is to be human. So what, what were your thoughts on... Why does he have? Does do we have anything more to add to that question? I think that that comes down. That's the gist of it, right? I mean, he doesn't have to have hobbies. I mean, basically, he's a computer in a body, and uh, he could be set himself to any task he wanted. He could devote himself to um, to ship services or or navigation or science, but he chooses to do these things. And I think that's the important thing is that that sets him apart from a, from a regular machine is that he chooses to have experiences that will make him a richer individual. You know, I just saw the episode Birthright, I think it is. No, uh, Rightful Heir, Rightful Heir, a couple nights ago um, on H&I TV, who should be a sponsor for us. <laughs> anyway, um, in that episode... Data and Worf have a conversation, and I forget the exact words, but um, basically Data says something to Worf about, you know, faith. That's the topic that they're discussing. discussing. And sorry, I'm stumbling here because this, this just came to my mind. So Data said that at one point while living on the colony that he struggled with the notion that he was just an android, nothing more than a computer. And basically he made the decision. He kind of took the leap of faith that he was going to become more... Um, yeah, so just tying into what Kevin said, that that was part of how he was going to become more, was taking on these hobbies that humans do that computers don't. Yeah, so he's sought to be more than a glorified toaster. Exactly. Essentially, hasn't he? Uh, okay, so Kevin, you, I had in our outline, had put down a list of his hobbies, essentially, but I think you wanted to break it down slightly differently. I had an idea that his hobbies sort of divide into three, maybe four categories. There's performing arts, there's visual arts, there's holodeck adventure, 
And I think you could throw animal husbandry in there because <laughs> why does data have a cat? You know. So I think those are the, the sort of the the sort of big groupings of uh, hobbies that he has. So if you start with the performing arts, uh, we've seen data play the violin play other musical instruments. He attempted stand-up comedy. He does Shakespearean drama. He learned how to dance. Like, that's a lot. Like, that, that is any well-rounded triple fat performer mm-hmm. is, is Data. And, and I think it's very interesting that, that that's a place he goes to to learn about humanity because I think that's what the arts give us is um, – and counting Star Trek as part of the arts, uh, a, a glimpse at what – uh, humanity is about. And I think he's trying to learn that from the human arts. In the episode with Juliana Tainer, what I think is pretty interesting is that his one of his first clues that she was perhaps an android was when they were playing the violin together and how she played it so precisely, so you know, just mm-hmm. metrically exact. And he had learned um, through his playing of the violin, that that's not what humans do, that humans aren't even capable of that. So I think that's an interesting, yeah, an interesting point because, I mean, if you want to be, any any computer, I suppose, could play the notes, you know, in in a score, but to actually bring out the emotion and the, the kind of randomness that a human can um, is a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I remember, I, I don't know where I said this, it was either on a podcast, this podcast or another podcast or to someone else in real life or perhaps it was in a dream, but I know I've had this thought somewhere and it's been, you know, it's been put out into the universe um, about the episode with Juliana Tainer just after and they have the, the violin duet. Uh, Troy says something to Data along the lines of, oh, I've never seen you be more expressive than you were in this performance, which is kind of really interesting in itself, in that data doesn't have the ability to show or experience or feel emotion in any way. But one of the interesting things about music is that through musical expression, it can bring out emotions in the listener. So data kind of was causing emotions to be experienced by the rest of the crew through... The, his interpretation and the expressiveness of the the music, which I thought was a, a really interesting point. And I wonder yeah. if that was in comparison to Juliana, who wasn't playing as expressively, whereas normally Data is playing with humans. So maybe by comparison, um, Data's playing seemed more expressive than usual because he was playing with, with someone who was playing it so precisely and metrically. But I think, Joe, that conversation was in last week's episode on deleted scenes. Was it? Okay, thank you. I thought I was going insane for a minute. <laughs> Joe going it's, insane it's, is it, another topic. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think back to when you go right back to the first episode of Next Generation, when Riker encounters Data in the holodeck for the first time, Data can't even whistle Pop Goes the Weasel. By the by, the end of the series, he's playing violin concertos. Um, he learns very quickly. That he does, and as a tap dancer, I will say he learned to tap dance very quickly as well. Yes, tap is not easy. I've I've dabbled in that as well. Mm-hmm. I can fake tap dance, but it's just me really slamming my feet down on the floor. It, you, I tap dance with my eyes. That's what I tell people. <laughs> just. 
Yeah. I don't, I don't don't look at my feet. Just look at my eyes and my jazz hands. As yeah. long as I'm as long as I'm looking like I'm having a good time, I'm dancing. Yeah. That's the most important part. Yeah. And just follow the top hat and the cane. Just don't yeah. look at my feet. Yeah. If the rhythm is right and my eyes are smiling, all is good. Uh, oh, cosplay ideas, cosplay ideas. <laughs> it's interesting that um, Data went like when we're talking about performing arts, he's always interpreting. He's not creating. Um, I guess uh, he did do a poetry reading at one point. So, I mean, he, he does have that. Um, that's that's almost that that sort of blurs the line between performing, performing arts and and the other and the rest. But uh, but he, he's I see him as an interpreter of humanity. And, and I think that's one of the things that he's got to that. He how do I want to word this that he that. He feels he can get closer to his ideal of humanity by studying the classics. Yeah, he did mention that he used the techniques of other famous violinists of years past. Um, well, Joe, you're a musician and a performer. Sandra, I was just thinking about that and thinking about how what, how my lifestyle is. I, and I think I've got it down to I'm more of a, a consumer than a creator in a lot of senses. But then I think about it a bit more. Obviously, I podcast, so that is me creating something to put out to the world. Um, I'm a musician, but most of my playing of piano is about interpreting other people's works rather than me creating new works. Um, Yeah, I think I'm more of a... I'm definitely more of a a consumer or an interpreter of other people's works do kind of the same thing as data. Not quite half as skilled as data is at the violin. So Well, because there's technically performing the music, but then interpreting it. Um, so what, like when you're playing, Joe, you're playing someone else's music, but when you're really into a piece, like what, what are you tapping into when you're playing something and it's coming from the heart um, or you're singing or, or whatever it is, like where where does that come from within you? <laughs> it's interesting because if I'm playing something that's quite technical, usually it's just um, terror that's getting me through. <laughs> like don't make a mistake because sometimes when you're practicing a piece, you'll have a rule or I have a rule certainly um, that says if you make a mistake, then you go back to the beginning and start again. Mm. And hopefully... Sometimes you have to just completely stop because you keep on making the same mistake at the same point and you'll take that little bar or a couple of bars of music out and analyse it and work out the fingering and the rhythm and what to do with it. Um, and then, as you practice it more, muscle memory kind of comes into play and your your fingers... It's not your fingers learning, but your brain's learning how to quickly control your fingers in order to get them to do what is supposed to be done. Um, so yeah, there's a lot um, that goes into. I'm going to talk about the piano because that's what I do uh, primarily, and uh, yeah, you have to play the correct notes in the correct order at the correct volume. Um, the notes together have to have the right rhythm, and then you have to think about all the other dynamics and all the other things that make the piece go alive, become alive. Um, You've all heard digitally created music before or a MIDI file being played Mm. and the computer is literally just following it kind of measure by measure and it's like reading out an ingredient list for a, a 
some food. And it's, there's no emotion, there's no heart to it. And I think that's where... I think that's why what is good about human imperfection, there's going to be a natural tendency to have nuances in music. And like my internal metronome, I cannot keep tempo. It's all over the place. But I think that can give feeling sometimes to a piece. I, I totally understand, Joe. I've done community theatre for the last 20 years. Mm. And so you get a script and the words are there. And with your, t- I love that it's a team thing and you do it together and you create something using the script as your guideline. Um, and your production isn't going to be the same as another production. And your show's not going to be the same from night to night because people are human and things happen. And uh, I, I find that a really um, exciting, exciting part of, of creating things and interpreting things. Mm. Like that's what, that's what I feel like I, my strength is, is interpreting yeah, I, I mean, for me, it's it's from the dance side, and it's one thing to perform the steps and perform them technically correctly, you know, with the right right rhythm, et cetera, et cetera. But the best dancers that I've known, you know, it comes from their heart, and you see it in their face, and you, I mean, down to their fingernails, everything is is exuding mm. whatever you know emotion that they're they're feeling or, or trying to evoke. It's I think it's interesting when you were talking, Joe. It occurred to me that it's flip flopped between. Um, data or what a computer can do and what a human can do whereas as a human you have to spend so much time training your fingers and your brain and your nervous system for a particular piece but then you're able to layer your interpretation and your emotion on it data on the other hand you know he's got the fingers down he's got the violin down he's got the tap steps down but to breathe life into it and um, interpret it and put emotion into it that's where he's had to you know, develop himself as a finger quotes human being. Yeah, because you can imagine there's no there's no binary instructions that data could download to get him to interpret music like a human would interpret music to include all those little nuances and bring out the emotion of the piece. Um, yeah, you can read music and just follow it step by step, and just send those signals to his fingers and they'll just follow automatically. Um, but the other side of it is takes the programs maybe a bit more nuanced. And yet, what he does do is he he uh, on several occasions when he's performing something, he will look at great performances of it in the past and take what he likes from each of these previous performers to create something that he likes even better. So while that's not technically what a human does, it is his way of putting his own stamp on the material that he's working on. Which is interesting because I think as humans, we do that kind of thing as well. We can Mm. always get inspired by other performers or Rhea, you might get inspired by other dancers. I know for a few years I went through um, a phase of being addicted to So You Think You Can Dance. (laughs) And like, I would love to be able to like do that, that really kind of athletic, gymnastic, contemporary dance that they do. They're just something, it's like the body, the the body being a machine that's like perfectly tuned and just, just something of utter beauty um well while you think of it i have a friend who's a a world-renowned concert pianist and and the same kind of thing and i played the piano growing up but it was always very technical and and um i didn't know that you were supposed to put emotion and put heart into it i thought you were supposed to be technical and exacting but when i see my friend play um 
the way he interprets pieces, and he's a member of the List Society, so he plays a lot of List, which is, as you probably know, Joe, mm. is on the technically challenging side. Yeah, but, I don't even touch yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> every bit of his being goes into this this music, and when you watch him perform, his face, his expressions, his body, he's, I mean, sometimes you wonder how he doesn't flip the piano over by accident, you know, but all of mm. that that goes into it, and and I think for me as you know, a non-pianist seeing it, like, now I know it's okay to do that, um, and I can't, ima- you know, imagine that other pianists that watch him perform, yeah, that it gives that inspiration that you kind of, into your own human algorithm, you know, build your own subroutine saying that, yes, I can um, emote in this way, kind of like data, you know, you see the example and, okay, this is one way I can do it. It's really interesting. I think they can go too far that way to be so involved in the the music that they lose control of everything else. (laughs) I I was at a a concert at the the concert hall in Glasgow and it was a piano recital. It was years and years and years ago. I couldn't tell you who it was or what they were playing, but they were just so invested entirely in playing this super technical piece that they moaned through the entire thing. <laughs> oh, gosh. They were like, <laughs> and I was like, that's not, it's not like a, there's no vocal part, <laughs> but they were like, <laughs> it was just very off-putting. That's hilarious. Um, well, to quote... You know, and I think... Oh, sorry, on you go. Oh, sorry, to, to quote my grandpa, a very, very wise man, he would ask... Uh, you know, what's the one body part that's not supposed to move when you dance? I don't know. Your bowels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think data has that problem. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I think it. That's you know, I think you can apply it here. <laughs> true. True. That's very true. I think it's interesting too. You know, I, I mentioned that uh, Riker Riker met data, and he couldn't whistle in the first episode, and yet the very one of the very last times we see data uh, performing music is at Riker's wedding. Oh Whereas, yeah, true. You know, so blue skies. So it's sort Indeed. of it's a. I've never really thought about it until now, but it is kind of a nice bookend for the relationship with um, Riker and Data. Oh, that is a good point. Although I've never bought the fact that he couldn't whistle. <laughs> it didn't make any sense to me either. There's a list of things physically that you have to do in order to make air flow through and make that whistly sound so if data has a tongue and teeth and like a soft palate of any kind then he's going to be able and lips he's going to be able to whistle to be fair there were a lot of things in the early days of next generation that data should have been able to if he'd gone to the academy he should have understood humor a little better than uh, he does on the on the bridge exactly and let's not get started on contraction yeah that too exactly the one thing that you mentioned so when i was thinking about data's hobbies obviously the the things that come up is the violin playing the artwork um shakespeare sherlock holmes playing poker with his crewmates but then you mentioned um animal husbandry um and having um, Spot, his cat, which I've got dogs, so I don't see them as being a hobby necessarily. And there was the other one, the comedy. I think that his attempt to try and understand humour, mm-hmm. and I think that's a, a hobby he maybe failed at and never went back to. <laughs> that's true. Because um, it was painful. I think stand-up comedy can be quite painful anyway. Yeah. If it goes wrong and it's, you fall flat in your face. Yeah, that is not something um, I would ever want to do on a regular basis. Sometimes I think I'm really funny, and I think other people think I'm really funny. And I like sometimes daydream being a stand-up comic, and then I think in reality, they do a lot of work. 
to get it's not it's not just off the top of their head it's all very scripted mm. and there's an element of audience feedback so they can adapt their performance and what do you do if there's a heckler or what do you do if nobody laughs or shouts get off the stage it's like i know because i've done i've done amateur theatre before way back in the past it's not something that i naturally do mm-hmm. i have to kind of force myself to be that kind of bring my extrovert side out to do it um I'm not going to be a stand-up comic anytime soon, I don't think. Uh, Kevin, what was the next um, topic we were going to talk I about? I thought we'd talk about visual arts because, I mean, that that plays a big role uh, throughout the series too. His, and I think this is Data's attempt to become more creative, right? Um, when you're creating a painting, you're not just... he could He could copy somebody, but he was really making an attempt to create something original and something that's his own. And uh, so I thought that would be an interesting thing to look at, his uh, his attempts at creating uh, paintings. Like the one where he's the birthright, isn't it? Where he starts having his dreams mm-hmm. because he gets electrocuted by that probe that Dr. Bashir brings on. Um, and he, it's funny because he's painting two things at the one time, yeah. which obviously only Data could do. I could try it, but it'd be like two really mangled stick figures. <laughs> um, and he, what was it? He said he started painting a wing and then he painted a bird, then he painted a flock of birds. And then he painted the anvil or something, not in that order, but he was trying to um, analyse his dreams through his artwork, um, which is interesting. And then we saw him at various times giving gifts to people of artwork. He gave Worf the painting of the Battle of something-something for his birthday, didn't he? Yes. I, I think he, you know, artists, human artists use that medium to try to put emotion on to canvas and I, I think he he does it to try to understand that so yeah I think it's I think it's quite quite fascinating that he would take that up as such a passion and, and again using the word passion uh, when we're talking about data is, is interesting as well I think music music is very structured there are tons of rules to follow with music if you don't like it Music's subjective like that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you might not like it, but it might be technically quite acceptable. It might follow all the rules. It might be... Yeah, but with artwork, like painting, you don't really have to follow any rules, do you? Exactly. Look at some of the artwork that is sold for millions, millions of dollars or millions of pounds that is literally... I could do that. Yeah, exactly. You could take, like, like artists take empties out a trash can in the middle of a, <laughs> a museum and then sells it for half a million dollars. <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, I, I'll do that for half a million dollars. I'll paint a square on a white canvas for, for two million. I mean, yes, that... <laughs> That's something yeah, what yeah. is that when you could take a, a square white canvas and you draw just one... Yeah, so what is it that about art that makes it makes some art acceptable like somebody could paint a black square on a white canvas and then I could paint a a yellow square on a red canvas and they sell theirs for a million pounds and I sell mine I don't sell mine because it's rubbish (laughs) it does it something about if you're an established artist and people like your work anyway that is more acceptable and people are more likely to like it. I think that's part of it. And I've heard before that the value of art, whether it's you know paintings, visual arts, or music, 
or dance is the emotion it evokes in the viewer or the consumer of the art. So, mm. yeah, maybe that's the trick. I got to figure out how to put some subliminal message in my square that I've painted on a white canvas so I can sell it for a couple million. I suppose the point about any artwork is, does it speak to you at some level? Does it invoke an emotion? I remember being at the, it was the Guggenheim in New York, maybe 25 years ago now. And there was one solitary sculpture hanging from the ceiling. And it was a series of concentric ellipses, each slightly smaller than the other, that just rotated a bit like a, a mobile that you put above a baby's bed. But there was a spotlight on it. And it was less about this wooden, these wooden ellipses spinning in the air and more about the pattern of the shadows that they created on the wall uh-huh. as they rotated. And I, was, I stood there quite transfixed by it, thinking it's just really simple but really effective and I think that's quite beautiful. Yeah. And then just this week, I on my Facebook feed, an advert for Leonid Afrimov. Have you heard of him? No. Unfortunately, I have not. What medium? Paintings. Oh, no, he's a Russian-Israeli modern impressionistic artist. And he died last year in Mexico. He was 64. But you have to Google his artwork. He does something with the paint that makes it look lit. Mm. Hmm. And I mean that as in using light, not in any kind of modern sense of the term. <laughs> it looks, it kind of looks like stained glass that's been backlit. Oh, nice. And I went, I spent about two hours the other day just going through his website, looking at his paintings. Oh, we should put a link in the show notes. Well, before we get back to data, there is one piece of art that I saw like 25 some odd years ago at a museum in Houston. And it was a sculpture and it was kind of like brass. Um, it was on the ground. I don't even remember exactly what it looked like, but I looked at this thing and I heard music. And it wasn't, it was like having a synesthesia experience. Yeah. So anyway, I just want to bring that up because I don't even remember what it was, but it was super duper cool. That's interesting because I hear music all the time. You got to take your earbuds out, Joe. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, no, it's just the, the rhythms of nature. Now you, mm-hmm. you pick up a rhythm and you end up having a wee beat in your head and then you sing along with it. That's some kind of yeah. all in my head, but it's. It's using nature to kind of inspire you and create new art, I suppose. Well, in my search for Data's paintings on uh, online, I discovered that um, the Christie's Auction House had an auction in 2006. And mm. it was a lot of Star Trek um, props and memorabilia. And a lot of Data's paintings went for $6,600. Wow. Uh, wow. It was four oil paintings and one acrylic uh, these are the ones from Birthright. Two images depict a blacksmith at work, one a glowing hand apparently forged by the blacksmith, one bird's wing, and one shows the Enterprise Corridor. Uh, and they were created by the Star Trek Art Department. So that's another thing to, to mention is that all of these works of art were actually made by somebody, and it was the, the people in the, in the art department of Star Trek The Next Generation back in the day. Very talented artists in their own right. Yeah, absolutely. Because I wonder if you had an actual android painting you know, if the data were real and he were actually painting, I mean, I guess I would expect his paintings to all be photorealistic. So, mm-hmm. you know, data as a, you know, as the character, like how, like his painting of Lal, you know, it's, you can tell it's all, it's a beautiful painting. It's pretty close, but it's not photorealistic. So I guess, you know, data as an Android pursuing this hobby. Um, yeah. Where, where was he, what was he drawing from in his painting algorithm to put expression into his paintings? That's an interesting point because he wanted to paint like he was human. So he went to the great masters in their styles 
and invariably created artwork that wasn't photorealistic because then he would have just been a printer, wouldn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good it was point. photorealistic. Kind of like his. Although, yeah, you know, <laughs> would have been funny if he like had a wee kind of what do you call them? Spray guns. The air. Oh, airbrush. Airspray, like an airbrush, yeah, like his fingertip, like kind of, <laughs> kind of popped off, and there was a wee spray gun, and he. Oh, that's funny. Did some graffiti, yeah. Well, I think we've covered art pretty well. He never did dabble in other forms of visual art, did he? We've never seen him sculpt or do yeah, macrame. masks. Oh, but was was that him or was that? Was he not trying to sculpt at the beginning of the episode before he actually created the mask, and he creates a bird, but it's it's almost photorealistic, That's right. That's isn't right. it? And then Troy says, um, "No, start again. I want to see something Data has created, not a computer reconstruction of something." That's true. Um, and then the mask, the clay mask, comes out. And Troy's like, hmm. And then they start to see all this iconography around the ship. Right. With that virus. It's interesting, though, that, uh, I mean, obviously Data has preferences and things he likes because he did gravitate to painting more than sculpting or or knitting or crochet or macrame. (laughs) I'd love to see him do some pottery. Pottery, yes. Although he'd probably be amazing at it. Oh, yeah. Imagine how fast he could... He's going to know how to centre the, the lump of pottery on the wheel. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to position his hands kind of where they have to be and just like make a vase. No time flat. True. I think. Hmm. That'd be cool to watch. But I th- I think you're right. He didn't... Um, that kind of artwork, painted paintings. He'd help that wee boy. I know it's not really him. He's just replicating something, isn't he? He helped the wee boy. He'd lost... His parents, who's mm-hmm. not Jeremy Astor, he's the other yes. little boy, um, and he makes the, the Greek columns, doesn't he, with the platforms, and data builds it really quickly. Do you remember that episode? Yes, that was um, Hero Worship. Yes, that's right. We never see him attempt creative writing, except for poetry. He writes a, a few poems, but he ha- he's never written a novel or um, or even a short story that we know of. He, he, he keeps a journal, writes a diary, sends it off to Bruce Maddox, <laughs> but... He'll write reports, Starfleet-style mm. reports, but they're going to be really formulaic, I suppose, and yeah. quite formalized. Well, kind of There's like his, much... his poetry. And, and actually, um, I, I'm one that can't do poetry. I just don't get it. And maybe it's just the words, I just can't understand it. But Data's kind of poetry... I can dig, but that's just kind of filling in a formula, you know, syllables per line and make the lines rhyme. And Yeah. I, I'm with Yuria. I don't understand poetry a lot of the time. I just remember being back in high school, having to sit for hours and analyse a poem. And I don't, I don't get it. No. It's like trying to see deeper meaning into what the, the author meant by his use of words and rhyme and rhythm and all that. And I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. I think people that do poetry and that kind of artwork are wired differently to me. I agree. Yeah, it made me, made me mad in school because if, if you want to say something, just say it. Why are you playing games with me? You know, why are you trying to <laughs> trick me? Just say what you want to say. Yeah, but I agree with you as well that I really like Ode to Spot. It's almost um, Dr. Zeusian in its construction <laughs> to spot. I think it's the scientist in me that I like the likes, all the the use of 
kind of scientific terminology. I think you can actually pull a lot out of that. You know, OSPOT, the complex level of behavior you display, connote a fairly well-developed cognitive array. And though you are not sentient, Spot, and do not comprehend, I nonetheless consider you a true and valued friend. And that was, of course, from Schism. It's perfect. Yes. I love it. Yes. But I wonder, like a poetry critic, I wonder what they would say. They'd maybe go, oh, that's trash. Like, I'd expect a high schooler to do better. That's juvenile, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, like, is, is it subjective or do we just not know the rules of poetry? You know what? I say it's subjective, just like any other art. It's beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Or the ear. True. But like movies, that you get movie critics and you make a movie that's completely slammed by the critics, but that you love for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons. Um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. Like Nemesis, <laughs> Amy Nelson. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could apply that to every Star Trek episode as well. Uh, I was thinking maybe we should move on to the next topic, which I was thinking would be Holodeck Adventures. He, Yeah, and he does partake in quite a few from right from the beginning, he he wants to be a part of Captain Picard's um, uh, adventures in. Uh, oh my gosh, it's gone right out of my head. Dixon Hill. Uh, Dixon Hill. Thank you. Oh my God. I, let me turn in my nerd card there. <laughs> and um, he, of course, the big one is Sherlock Holmes and Elementary, my dear Data, and and the follow up. So why do you think Data is drawn? to uh, role-play in the holodeck. I see a couple reasons. Um, I think with Sherlock Holmes, it's, I think he's perhaps drawn to the, the analytical aspect um, of how Sherlock Holmes solves his cases or whatever, and I'm definitely not a Sherlock Holmes buff. Um, and I think the Dixon Hill and the other holodeck adventures, I, I equate kind of with poker, is he does this to interact with you know, his shipmates with the, his fellow crew and as a way to observe them and learn from them and participate with them. Kind of a friendship thing. Yeah, um, interacting them with them in a, a social setting as well as being work colleagues because they work and live together. So uh, I think it's probably important for Data to do, do his work and be professional, but also if he's exploring humanity, then do all the things that make him more human, like having friends and playing poker. Interesting choice with the Shakespeare because we see him on the holodeck practicing Shakespeare and being tutored by Captain Picard, who's played by Patrick Stewart, a famous Shakespearean actor. I've never studied Shakespeare, wasn't any required reading in any English class I ever took. Really? Um, that surprises me. Yeah, never. So yeah, it's, I didn't. I've never really read Shakespeare to any great extent. I read that bit of Hamlet, the "To Be or Not to Be," because I did once when I was a teenager. Um, I kind of get why they've included it, why Data would go there. Obviously, Captain Picard is a big fan. He keeps his. We see. I think we see a bunch of different copies and editions of the complete works of Shakespeare in his um, quarters and in his ready room at various points. Um, so it's an obvious choice for data, given who Shakespeare was and how celebrated he is as an author, even still in the 24th century. And having Captain Picard, who's a big fan, to kind of tutor him in the ways of Shakespeare. I think he probably imagined that that would give him deeper access and a deeper understanding of what it is to be human. 
I, I would love to to see Data perform Shakespeare in the original Klingon. <laughs> that's the only way. That's right. Was it pach 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 me? Yes, yes. To be or not to be, yeah. <laughs> Star Trek sex. Yep, yep. Yeah. I find it interesting, too, that um, he even goes and does some of his other leisure activities in the holodeck, like, by himself. He plays poker with his crewmates, but he also creates a holographic poker game that he plays with Earth scientists of the past, you know? It's, I think it's it's kind of interesting to, to see that in him, too, that he's he's trying... I'm not sure what he's trying to learn there. I, I, why he would go and do something like that. Well, if poker is a social activity basically kind of a poker is the excuse for an opportunity to socialize with your friends um and you get to know people when you socialize with them what better way to get to know albert einstein and stephen hawking oh my gosh that's so cool um and isaac newton was that the other one yes you know and to pick their brains and have kind of casual conversations over a game of poker and is it less about why data would do that and more about how do we how do we um, make a place for Stephen Hawking because he wants a a walk on role an in inverted commas, um, so it makes sense. He's one of the most celebrated scientists of our time. Um, let's have scientists, famous scientists throughout history. And who are people going to pick? They're going to pick Einstein for the twentieth century and so Isaac Newton. So I mean, you'd think there'd be a couple Vulcans in there too, but hey, you know, we're not here to nitpick. True. True, just baseball. It's not not logical, yeah. And actually, on that note, did we ever see Data play any sports in the holodeck? I have been thinking about that too, and that's one set of hobbies that we never see Data do. And I wonder if that's just because he knows physically he's capable of all of them. I think people people play sports to try to improve themselves physically, and I don't know that Data can or should. Mm-hmm. So why would he play? Yeah, he'd probably be lethal at Parisi Squares. Mm-hmm. Would there be any sports he wouldn't be any good at? Is there something about... Swimming? <laughs> He's got that built-in flotation device, Oh, that's he? true. That's true. So he would just maybe float. <laughs> he'd be a phenomenal synchronized swimmer. <laughs> that's a good question. Figure skating? Yeah. No, no, you've got to imagine he'd be amazing at that. <laughs> Technically, yes, but what about the expressiveness? So it's about, like, if it's a, like a team sport, are there anyth- is there anything, like something involving horses? Do you know what I mean? Like, um, like water polo, would to be any good at that because the relationship between the rider and the horse, which he might lack because he's not human. Or to be a jockey, he'd probably be too heavy. Is he heavy, though? I thought he was. I thought he was... Remember they get the ingredient list from the most toys? <laughs> yeah. When they try to break it down so they know what to put in the shuttle before they blow up. Like 32 kilograms of molybdenum cobalt alloy, 5.7 kilograms of bioplasheetin, something like that. <laughs> uh, let's see if I can find what Data's weight is. Mass. Mass. Data's mass. I'm sorry. <sighs> Weight's a force, Mesden Newtons. Did you? My angry scientist came out there. Did you, did you notice that? Okay. Uh, Juliana said that when he was born, he weighed approximately 100 kilograms. That's um, a reasonable human mass. I think jockeys are typically pretty small. Yeah. You don't weigh. Like a coxswain in crew. You know, you've got the big buff people rowing the boat and you got the tiny little coxswain at the front. So definitely want data rowing the boat. <laughs> yeah. You would be like a speedboat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the horse the would be going like that. Actually, it would spin in a circle because he'd only be rowing on one side. <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. Maybe there's an Android Olympics 
uh, in the 24th century. The card season too, you never know. <laughs> Did we want to talk about what hobbies we'd like to see him have? If the, I would like to have seen him play the piano. Yeah. I think we mentioned we wanted to see him do some other form of artwork. It wasn't painting, which would be quite interesting. Origami. Ooh. He never took up gardening. We never saw him in the Arboretum. <laughs> no. I would kind of like to see him figure skate, now that you guys have mentioned it, or um, playing any sport. That would be... <laughs> I'm picturing Data in a basketball jersey and those big long shorts and <laughs> shooting hoops. I do think like a creative, a creative endeavor like writing a novel would have been an interesting... It could have been like a through line for several episodes data's still working on his book you know getting critiqued by captain picard i think that could have been interesting oh the other thing i thought of was cooking yes i know he doesn't need to eat but food is an important part of the human uh the human existence it would have been interesting to see him attempt i mean if Riker can do it with that bizarre omelet he made uh why not data try his hand at cooking I, I think it could have been funny to see the reactions of his friends to whatever kind of food he served them. Because cooking is art as well. It, exactly. Definitely, definitely. What was that episode where um, he goes a 10 forward and he tries a drink that, that Guinan made and he didn't like it? Or was it in the movie when he got his emotions? It was Generations, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like, I hate this. And he wanted more. Yeah. More, more, more. Yeah, so that could be interesting, especially um, seeing him try to cook before he... He has the emotions to decide what he likes and doesn't like. And, you know, because that's part of the, the art of cooking is tasting your food as you go and deciding that you need 12 more cloves of garlic and some chili powder ASAP. Yeah, because we assume that he's got the olfactory capacity and the, the taste capacity of a human or something close. Yeah, so, but a lot of, a lot of what, about what food is, is... The emotion and the memories it invoke. Mm-hmm. Now, when you that's the smell memory thing you get, where you smell something, it takes you right back to a specific moment in time. Smell is perhaps the most powerful human sense that evokes memories, and when you think about it, it's the most intimate. Your olfactory nerves in your nose—I mean, they're extensions of your brain. Your olfactory bulbs. So when you smell something, you're actually bringing molecules that are in the air into your nose, into your skull, and they're touching part of your brain. Um, again, mm-hmm. that's why, at least in what I've, in the studies that I've read, that's why the smell evokes such powerful memories is it's just, it's all right there. Um, mm. So yeah, you're basically like the smell of the, the toasted buns that's touching your brain, those to- toasted bun molecules, and that's why it's such a powerful um, memory inducer. But I never thought of that before, that if data doesn't have that capacity to smell and the memories induced by smell, um, that's a pretty big part of being human. Y'all are making me hungry right now. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think we've covered pretty much everything. I, I think I think what it comes down to in the end is that Data does these sort of hobby-like activities in order to try to become closer to human because, because that's what makes us human, right? And I know it's not a hobby, but I think the ultimate thing, the ultimate human thing that he did was to create Lal, mm-hmm. to have a family. His hobbies uh, run right through his entire story arc, right up to la- this year with um, Picard, because the whole story kicked off, part of the whole story kicked off because of a painting that Data had made, right? So 
painting called Darter. Yes. Right. Just to round up the conversation, what are your overall thoughts about the topic of Data's hobbies? Well, I think Data's hobbies all had the common theme of helping him to become more human. And maybe it started as a way for him to kind of analyze the things that humans do. And what better way to analyze something than to actually do it yourself. But I think over time, as we saw throughout the course of the, the seven seasons and the movies, he made some of those hobbies his own. He went from not being able to whistle to singing at the Troy's wedding and his paintings came up time and time again. And I, poker, I love how he wears that plastic visor when he plays poker. So I think his hobbies helped him to actually become more human. As usual, I had my list of Data's hobbies just from memory and then so many other things came up throughout the conversation and just our discussion of what it means to be human and the subjectivity of art and different types of art and how they make us feel is really quite interesting. For my part, it allows me to learn a little bit more about my co-host, so, and that's always a good thing. Kevin, what about you? Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, Data's had so many hobbies that he sort of, he dabbled in, in lots and lots of things but as the series went on really he did focus towards he gravitated towards painting and art so i think that shows that that's like all people right when you're young you try everything and you find out what you like and data came to discover what he liked and what he liked was painting and playing poker with his friends and feeding his cat so uh you know, in, in that way, I think that makes Data a little bit more human. Well, it's been so much fun talking about Data's hobbies today, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here in the network. Here is what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. Not wanting to be spoiled about this book, I would suggest then not listening now, read the book and then come back later, and then you can enjoy the whole freaking feature of this glorious analysis that we're going to give this i shot jr sorry i i thought we were getting into spoilers my my bad <laughs> i don't know i just like woke up from a dream i was in the shower um, so <laughs> <laughs> the orb but if you think about the fact that cisco is with the prophets at this time and Section 31 is going to try to kill the Prophets, maybe that's a way for Cisco to re-enter the story and play his role in representing the Prophets to overturn what Section 31 is trying to do and to champion that idea of Truitic and, and end the season with that message that religion is fine for those who want to believe it and it's also fine for you not to believe it. Earl Grey. One of my notes I made on this episode is that Riker is a cosplayer. He likes to put on the native costumes of the planets he goes to. Yes. Ewan, I have started making a, a Riker Angel 1 cosplay. <laughs> Ewan, Ewan wants it for SLBs. So. Nice. Yes! That was one of my notes as well, was Riker's left nipple. <laughs> Doesn't leave much to the imagination, but yeah. To the journey! Quick snap poll, Suzanne. Would you prefer Neelix yes. to cook for you or Chell? Chell. Chell? Zach. Neelix or Chell? Neelix. Oh. <laughs> oh. I see Leola root in your future. <laughs> Lots of it. Oh, yeah. Give me those exotic ingredients. Yes. Chell is my man. 
I mean, you can have with Chell, you can get like all those puns, pun food items that he made. <laughs> exactly, it would be like Bob's Burgers in space. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, or the desktop Apple Podcast app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If, like me, you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. See when Rhea reads bits of the closing like this, I think I'm on hold with an American company. <laughs> like, for customer services, press 1. For complaints, press 2. Pour service en français, appuyez sur le 2. That's what we get in our phone trains. Oh, yeah. oh, of course, of course. Para español, lo prima dos. my airline gate agent voice. Oh, nice. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel. B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to one of us and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter and Instagram at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So, Rhea, where can people contact you when you are not tapping your little taps off? <laughs> well, those times where I'm not tapping my taps off are few and far between, but you can find me on the Babel Conference. You can find me in my backyard grilling. You have not lived until you've grilled your tomatoes. It's just, I can't eat them raw. Um, but yeah, pretty much the Babel Conference is my social media presence. Joe, where can people contact you when you're not retraining your mind and your nerves and your fingers to play incredibly complex piano pieces? Well, I really should be doing more of that. It's right beside me. There's no reason why I shouldn't be practicing more. Well, you're podcasting. Um, so when I'm there. I will try. I can't really multitask. I'm not data. <laughs> when I'm not doing that, you can find me on the Babel Conference. You can tweet me on the Twitter at joeyjoe77uk or you can email me joepodcasts at gmail.com. And Kevin, where can people contact you while, when you're not contemporary dancing while playing violin? Well, um, you don't want to hear that. Uh, the, the, the violin is not great, and I'm not all that coordinated. But you can find me on the Babel Conference. Uh, you can also listen to me on a podcast I do with some friends called True North Nerds. And we have a good Twitter presence on, at True North Nerds as well. So if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T reon.com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm.
We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, Chris Terbuzio, Jim McMahon, Justin Ozer, and Joseph Keegan. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Am I dancing, Doctor? Oh, Joe, the complex levels of behavior you display connote a fairly well-developed cognitive array. Though you are not sentient, Joe, and do not comprehend, I nonetheless consider you a true and valued friend. My mental pathways have become accustomed to your sensory input patterns.